Now we're going to move on now. We're going to jump right into our message. If you've been with us for a while, you know we're in a series called Hope in Exile, the first letter of Peter. And so if you have a Bible at home, please grab that and work your way to 1 Peter. Again, we're going to start in chapter 2. Uh, we spent the last few weeks in chapter 1, and so we're going to turn the page now and dive right into chapter 2. Now, as you find your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, let me just briefly recap chapter 1 for you. You may remember that Peter is writing this to a group of churches um, that are in exile. These Christians were under intense persecution for their faith in Jesus under a psych- just a psychopathic Roman emperor named Nero. They were absolutely marginalized in their culture. They were very likely at this point, they were, they were hurting, they were confused. And so Peter writes them and he does two primary things in chapter one. The first thing he does is he reminds these Christians who are suffering of their identity. And their identity, according to Peter, is that they are elect exiles. And so the idea is that though they suffer now for a little while, in the ultimate sense, they are chosen and deeply loved by God. So he reminds them of of who they are in their suffering. This is meant to give them a sense of hope instead of despair. And then the second thing he does in chapter one is he spends the bulk of it teaching them how they should live their lives in light of their new identity as elect exiles. And so as we've seen the last couple of weeks, Peter challenges them to live holy lives. That word holy just means set apart or different from the rest of the world. And then as we saw last week, he actually challenges them to love each other within the family of God with a ferocious love. And so we talked about the importance of unity and love for one another within the family of God. Talked about the fact that we must never allow secondary issues that tend to divide in our culture to divide within the family of God. In fact, this is this, this is so important. Like our unity, our love for one another is so important that Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross is a prayer that his disciples would be one, that they would be united just like he's united to the Father. And so we see that this is primary to our faith. This is not a secondary matter, our unity with one another, our love for each other. It's not a secondary thing. It's actually a, a primary thing in God's kingdom. It's crucial so that the world around us would believe the message of Jesus. Now, that's probably, we kind of talked about this last week, probably one of the most important messages we've preached here in the last year or so. And so, uh, man, if you you missed that for whatever reason, I know it's Memorial Day weekend or whatever, some of y'all might have been out on the lake or hiking or whatever. If you missed it, let me just encourage you, carve out 35 minutes, go back and pick up that message that we, um, we talked about last Sunday. Now, in light of all of that in chapter one, so our identity in Christ, right? Elect exiles, even in suffering, and also how we are to live our lives in light of this new identity as elect exiles, holy life set apart. We are to love each other with a ferocious love. In light of all of that, Peter now shifts in chapter two to some really practical things. And so we're gonna pick up right there. This is the apostle Peter writing to us, chapter two, starting in verse one. We're gonna cover the first 10 verses uh, this morning. So Peter says this, uh, put, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed 
you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so Peter opens up this portion of his letter with two challenges for these Christians who are suffering under intense persecution. Here's number one, the first command. He says, put away sin. Put away sin. Look back at verse one with me. He says, so put away all, and notice the list here, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And so the picture that Peter is painting for us here, when he says to put away sin, it's kind of like this idea of, of casting something off of you, or to take something off and lay it aside. Now, for Cheryl and I, it's, it's been a, a few years now, but uh, when, our, when our kids were babies, we learned pretty quickly when we would leave the house to take a change of clothes with us, not for them, but for us. Because uh, with a baby, one of two things was always bound to happen as soon as you leave the house. Either you were going to get a, a diaper blowout as you carry your baby around, or the baby was going to spit up all over you. In either case, you end up with this nasty, sticky, warm, gooey stuff, right, like soaking through your shirt. And I can just remember this desperate feeling when that would, would happen of wanting to get that gooey shirt off as quickly as possible, right? So I can remember just like trying to take the shirt off and not let it touch on the way up. You don't want to get it in your hair. And it's just this disgusting thing. But then when you finally get that shirt off, it was just this amazing feeling of relief and freedom. And that's precisely, I think, the picture that Peter is trying to paint for us here. He's saying, listen, guys, you, you have this nasty, puke-filled shirt called sin, like, all over you. What you need to do is you need to, you need to take it off. You need to set it aside. You need to put it away. And so Peter is saying, listen, y'all, as believers, you got you to gotta get that junk off. You got to put it away. You got to pull it off carefully. So you don't get it all over your, your hair. You got to put it away. You got to throw it in the trash and light it on fire. That's the idea that Peter is painting here for us of how we are to deal with this, this sin, particularly sin that affects one another within the body of Christ. Now, if you notice the sins that he, he kind of lays out here in this list, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, Peter is not at this point dealing with the more prominent sins that we tend to think of as big sins in our church culture, right? He's not, he's not dealing with sexual sin here. He's not dealing with drunkenness. He's not dealing with idolatry of the heart. He is specifically calling out sins that harm one another within the context of the body of Christ, which tells me that these churches that he's writing to in the first century, not unlike many churches today, were beginning to struggle with turning in on one another under the weight of their persecution, of their exile, of their suffering. And church, don't we know this to be true in our own experience? Even in the context of our own families at home, man, when we are under uh, tons of stress, right? There's lots of things going on in our life. When we are in pain, when we are suffering the most, who do we tend to take it out on? We tend to take it out on those who are closest to us, right? We say things in a moment of anger or pain to our spouse or to our kid, or if you're at home and uh, you're, maybe you're a teenager, you say things to your, your parents. 
that we would never say to anyone else. Well, the same thing can begin to happen in the family of God, right? It absolutely can. So you, you have these scenarios that potentially could play out. You're like, hey, are you a, are you a pro-mask guy? Why do you want to know? Are you, a, are you an anti-mask guy? Oh, you're one of those. Well, we actually believe in science over here. We actually have faith in Jesus over here. You go find another small group. We actually love Jesus over here. And you get these little fractions and tribes within the body of Christ and we begin to have malice in our hearts towards others. And Peter is saying to these believers and he's saying to us today, don't do it. Do not go there. I know that you're suffering. I know that you're frustrated. I know that the season of life is really hard, but listen to me, don't you dare turn in on one another. He's saying, put that junk off. Cast it off like a shirt with baby puke on it. Just get rid of it. Going back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, which is where we drilled down last week. As Peter said, and you guys gotta learn to love each other fervently, fiercely. And so what does that look like, Peter? Well, don't, don't slander each other. Don't talk bad about each other. Don't envy each other. Don't harbor malice in your heart for one another. Like, what, what's, what's wrong with you? Don't you realize that you have been purchased with a high price? Believer, you've got to love each other like Christ loved you, which, by the way, Christian, in case you forgot, Jesus didn't love you because you were so lovable. He loved you in spite of all the filth and the grime in your life. And what that means is we now, in turn, because we've received that kind of love, now we can love one another in spite of the filth and the grime in other people's lives around us. And so command number one, right out of the gate, Peter says, put away sin. It's like a nasty shirt, man. Just, just take it off. Get, get rid of it. Put, put it off. Get that junk away from you. You say, Peter, how do we do that? Man, that's, that's hard. This stuff is just like ingrained in me. Like it's easy for me to, to develop malice in my heart against people who are not like me. It's easy for me to slander, slander and envy those who have a different worldview than me and they have different views on different issues in life. It's hard. How do, I, how do you do this? Peter's like, I got you. Here, here's how. Look at verse two. In verse two, Peter says, like newborn infants long or crave the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now Peter here is referring to the word of God. He just finished talking about the word at the end of chapter one. He's circling back around to it now and he goes, hey, hey listen, listen, if you guys wanna get that nasty puke-stained shirt of sin that you're wearing off, this is how you do it. This is how you do it, this is the secret. You need to feed on, you need to feast on the pure spiritual milk of the word. If you, wanna, if you wanna grow up in Christ, if you wanna mature spiritually, you have to long for and nourish your soul with his revealed word to us, which is found in this book that we call the Bible. Now that happens for us in a variety of different ways. We, we can do that in our personal reading time. Many people call that their quiet time. You just 
kind of carve out 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day, and you get alone with the Lord, and you read his word, and you meditate it, and you pray, and you listen, and so that, that's really important. Another way that we feast on this pure spiritual milk that Peter's talking about, the word of God, is what we're doing right now. It's, it's a corporate gathering of the saints where we, where we sing the word and we proclaim the word together. It also happens in smaller groups like Bible studies or community groups where you can really take the word and begin to, to pull it apart and discuss it and apply it to your life in practical ways. And Peter is saying, this is how you feed your soul. This is not only how you feed your soul, it's also the number one weapon to put off the sin in your life that's destroying you and those around you. And Peter actually uses the imagery here of a newborn infant to drive home his point. Peter's, Peter's like, man, you, you gotta be like a, a newborn baby. It, like, just like they're hungry for milk, you gotta be just like that in your hunger for the word of God. Now, for, for those of you who uh, perhaps you have a newborn baby at home or Perhaps you can recall back to uh, years past when you had a newborn baby. What, what, is a, what is a newborn's hunger for milk like? All right, is, it, is it just like, ah, they, they kind of could take it or leave it, not really, a, not really a big deal. They're just fine to get it whenever you get around to it, whenever it's convenient. For, no, their, their hunger, a newborn's hunger for milk is insatiable. Right? In fact, the first few months of your life as a parent, you're literally feeding them every two or three hours. I can remember when we had our, our first uh, baby, Haley. We were first-time parents. We were in another country, so she was born in, in Jakarta, which made for a really stressful whole situation. And, um, and she was, a, again, she was premature. And uh, we were in the hospital with her for, for a week. And so she was, she was in our room, and uh, we, were, we were feeding her literally every couple of hours. And, uh, man, after a while, it just became exhausting. After a week of this, of, of no sleep and just her crying incessantly, uh, want, wanting milk. And, and here's the thing. Like, I, at, at that moment, I could not reason with her. Like, I, I couldn't say to her, Haley, please, baby, just two more hours. Just, get, just give me two more hours so I get a little bit of sleep and then I'll, I'll pick you up, I'll carry you to mama. You'll be fine and then we can actually get some sleep and be safe. I could not reason with her. Now, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but we finally, after a few days, called a nurse to take her out for the night so that we could finally get some rest. I mean, a, a newborn's hunger for milk is all-consuming. I mean, it controls everything that they do because they need that milk to grow and thrive. And Peter is saying, hey, believer, especially when you're suffering, you need to learn how to long for, to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word, just like a newborn craves milk at 2 a.m. in the morning. And so truth number two this morning is this. Believer, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. Listen, we've got to develop this insatiable hunger for it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, man, sometimes I open up this book and I read it and I'm trying and nothing happens, man. Especially you're in like Numbers or Leviticus or so, something like that. You, you open it up and you, you try to read. Like, man, God talked to me and I'm gonna, you spend 10, 15 minutes reading. You're like, man, I don't get it. I'm not getting anything out of it. Let me just say, keep at it. Keep 
feasting on, keep consuming the word of God. And this is what you're going to have, you'll see happen over the, the long haul is, is over time, you're going to begin to see a slow growth that's happening spiritually for you that would happen in no other way. So Peter is saying, listen, you got you to crave this spiritual milk, this word of God. You got to crave it. You got to feast on it just like a baby hungers for uh, milk when they're a newborn. Now look at verse number two. Our, our four, sorry. We're going to go to number, number four here. And Peter says this. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying to these suffering Christians is this. Jesus was rejected by men on the one hand, but on the other hand, he was chosen and he was precious to the Father. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer injustice. And Peter is reminding them that they are not alone in their suffering. Right? Jesus is the suffering Savior. That, that's who he is. He is well acquainted with pain, rejection, and loss. And believer, like Jesus, you will also experience rejection and suffering in this life. But also, don't forget that like Jesus, you are also chosen and you are precious in the sight of your Father. Now listen, maybe some of you need to be reminded of that this morning. That if you know Jesus, you do not ever and you will never suffer alone. And what Peter is doing here is he's, he's using temple imagery. See, in the Old Testament, God chose to dwell with his people in a physical temple. That's, that's where his presence literally was. And so if you wanted to experience God in Old Testament times, if you wanted to be in his presence, typically what that meant is you would have to travel to Jerusalem and go to this massive physical temple. You had priests who would make sacrifices on your behalf. And Peter is saying right here, not anymore. Not anymore. God, God no longer dwells in a physical temple anymore. He goes, hey, followers of Jesus, you are now that temple. Jesus was the living stone rejected by men, and you too are now living stones, but you're being built into a beautiful spiritual house and God's presence now dwells in us and with us. He's saying, believer, we are now the dwelling place of God Almighty. Like, that's who you are, Christian. You are a living stone being built into the temple of God where his presence dwells and his power moves. And do you want to know why his presence dwells with us and his power moves in us and through us? Listen, it's not because we earned it. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It wasn't because we're so good. It's only because we're being built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Look at, look at verse number six. And what, what we're going to see happen right here is Peter is going to start hyperlinking us back to several places in the Old Testament. So we don't have time to drill down deeply into this today. I would encourage you um, on your own perhaps to go back and, and read this. But what, 
What's going to happen is Peter is now going to begin to quote prophecies from the Old Testament. So he's going to start Isaiah 28. He's going to move to Psalm 118, and then he's going to finish up in Isaiah chapter 8. This is what he says as he quotes Old Testament scripture. For it stands in scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now here, here's, what, here's what Peter is getting at here. In ancient architecture, the most important piece of any building was the cornerstone. The cornerstone was typically the largest stone. It was typically the heaviest stone. You typically would, would lay that stone down before you laid any other part of the foundation. And the cornerstone had to be flawless in its measurements and its design because the entire structure depended on the cornerstone. And the reality is if you got the cornerstone wrong, the rest of the building eventually would come tumbling down. It would eventually collapse in on itself. The cornerstone was crucial. And Peter is saying here that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone that will never crumble. He is the cornerstone that will never disappoint you. He is the cornerstone that you can build your life on who will never fail you. And I think for many of us as, as Christians, as believers, maybe those of us who grew up in the church, we, we kind of know these things to be true in our minds. They're, they're facts, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. We all have tons of other cornerstones competing in our lives for our trust and our affection. In fact, I would say, I would just guess there are many of you who are watching this service right now who are trying to build your life on other cornerstones, even those of you who would call yourself Christians. There are many of you right now who I'd almost guarantee you are trying to build your life on the cornerstone of popularity or the cornerstone of success or perhaps a romantic relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or perhaps you're trying to build your life on the cornerstone of sexual fulfillment or finding the right job, or making a certain amount of money. But Peter is reminding us here that there is only one cornerstone that will never crumble under the weight of life's hardships, just one. Now here's the truth that most of us probably wouldn't want to admit, but it's the truth nonetheless. Hard times surface deep idols. Say that again, hard times tend to surface deep idols in our hearts. And so when you are lonely, when you are frustrated, when you are hurt, when you are angry about what's going on in the world around us, or you're angry because you can't go to school or work or church, or you're depressed because your life isn't going the way that you hoped that it would right now, where do you turn in those moments of frustration and pain and anxiety and anger? Where do you run? Do you run to food? Do you run to drink? Do you run to entertainment and just kind of Netflix for 13 hours a day? Do you turn to temporary pleasures? Do you begin to bury yourself in work? Where do you run? Because where you run in hard times reveals your functional saviors, 
your functional cornerstone. And here's what I think. I think that this pandemic, the last couple of months, has probably surfaced some really serious idols in most of our lives. And I know that because I track a lot of your social media accounts. I see what you post, man. I I have seen more anger, more frustration, more hatred on social media than I have probably ever seen before. So I want to say it again. Hard times surface deep idols. What false cornerstones are you trusting in today, friend? Because the reality is this. If you are not building your life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, it is all going to come crumbling down at some point. It's just a matter of time. But for those of us, Peter says, who choose to consistently build our lives upon the sure foundation of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Peter says we will never be put to shame. We, will, we may suffer in this life, we may be marginalized in this life, but in an ultimate sense, we will never, ever be put to shame. And that's great news, but there's also a flip side to what Peter is saying here in this whole idea of Jesus being the cornerstone. By the way, not a cornerstone to build your life on, the cornerstone to build your life on. And the flip side of that good news, for those of us who believe, the flip side of that is that for those who do not believe, those who choose to disobey the word, that this, this stone that gives us life, to those of us who believe, it's the same stone, Peter says, that becomes a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense for those who will not believe. Now, this happened in Jesus' day. I mean, think about it. The nation of Israel largely rejected Jesus. Now, now Israel, were the, they were the people that had all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. They had the physical temple in Jerusalem with the presence of God there. They had all of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what to look for, and then all of a sudden, Jesus finally shows up, and they're like, nope. Nope, I will, I will not believe And they rejected him. They had everything they needed to know him, love him, recognize him, and follow him. And he shows up and they reject him. The Savior, the cornerstone, became a stumbling block to them. And it's really no different in our day, is it? There are tons of people in our culture who are absolutely fine with you being a Jesus follower. They're fine with you believing whatever nonsense you want to believe and worshiping however you want to worship, but as soon as someone lovingly points them to the exclusive teachings of Jesus himself, right, teachings like, like I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. Teachings like this one that we're looking at from the Apostle Peter, like Jesus is the cornerstone. He's not a cornerstone that you can choose from among many cornerstones. He's saying he is the cornerstone as soon as that truth gets injected into the discussion, Jesus immediately becomes an offense and a stumbling block to those who are perishing and refuse to believe. Now, that's, that's the bad news, but the good news is, if you're watching this today, friend, and you haven't crossed that line, that threshold of faith, you haven't given your life, placed the weight of your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, the good news for you is that it does not have to end that way for you. The reality is Jesus came for you to give you life and to give you life abundantly. 
So build your life on the cornerstone that will never fade, the cornerstone that will never crumble or disappoint. Now we're almost, almost done. Peter now begins to contrast those who, who disbelieve and stumble over the cornerstone of Jesus with those of us who are followers of Jesus. Watch this in verse 9. He says, but you, he's kind of reminding them, pointing them back to their identity. But you are a chosen race. Again, he's contrasting those who stumble over the stone. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter does two huge things here in closing. Firstly, he reminds them of their new identity in Jesus. He goes, guys, guys, you got to remember, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Now, what what did priests do in Old Testament times? Basically, they helped connect people to God. That's what they did. He said, guys, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a precious people, God's prized possession. So here's truth number three this morning. Believer, embrace your new identity. Embrace your new identity. Man, I I am convinced that much of the troubles that we face as Christians, much of our our, um, anxiety, much of our depression, many of our sin patterns, even, you name it, most of these things, I'm convinced, can be traced back to one thing, and that is misplaced identity. It's misplaced identity. I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier this week, and uh, the guy, the host, was interviewing uh, one of the most famous, best fighting coaches in the, in the world, right? So he trains boxers and MMA fighters and, and all, all these kind of things. And he said one of the hardest things for him as a coach is he works with the best fighters in the world. One of the hardest things for him to see is guys who are past their prime in the ring or the octagon have no business fighting anymore, but they can't stop. They, they, they keep fighting, they get in the ring, and they're just getting pummeled again and again and they just keep going back when they're past their prime and he went on to say the problem with a lot of these guys and it was heartbreaking to him as a coach is a lot of these guys begin to intertwine their identity with what they do as a job they begin to they they begin to mistakenly intertwine their very core identity with fighting what they do as a job And they can't handle not to have the roar of the crowd and the fans and the adulation. They can't can't handle that. It actually becomes who they are instead of just something that they do. So he's saying the most heartbreaking thing for him as a coach is seeing guys with misplaced identity. And listen, we do this same exact thing, don't we? We begin to build our identity on all of these other things, whether it's our job or our career or what school we go to or who we're dating or who we're married to or how successful our kids are academically or athletically or any number of other things. And Peter is saying, listen, before you are anything else, Christian, before you are white, before you are black, Latino, Asian, before you are a Republican or a Democrat, before you are a Tar Heel or a Cameron Crazy, before you are any of those things, you are first and foremost, you are primarily God's people. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's prized possession. 
You are that before you are anything else. And Peter is saying, listen, you got to make sure that you are rooting your identity in what matters most Christian. And that is your status as a chosen child of the king. That is your primary identity. Everything else is secondary. Everything else flows from that primary identity. Now, last thing here, and then we're done. Look back at verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Watch this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter goes, God has given you, Christian, this new identity, this new inheritance in heaven, this living hope, this new identity as living stones, so that... In order that you might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to the world around you. In other words, our identity as believers is connected to our mission as followers of Jesus. Believer, your response to your new identity, and this is our last point, point number four, truth number four, is we must become proclaimers of the excellencies of Jesus. See, our, our lives, even in seasons of exile, even in seasons of suffering or chaos like our world, our nation is experiencing right now, even in those seasons, ultimately, our lives should aim to point others to the excellencies of Jesus. Listen, we ought to be more excited about what Jesus has done to set us free than anything else in our lives. Our conversations with other people ought to be seasoned with the excellencies of Jesus. How we invest our, our time and our talent and our resources ought to center around answering the question, how can I make Jesus look excellent? How can I make Jesus look beautiful to the world around me? Believer, we must become proclaimers of the excellencies of Jesus, especially now. Listen, now maybe more than ever, our world needs hope, and we have that hope. His name is Jesus, and they need that. They need what we have. And so we must become proclaimers of the excellencies of Jesus. I wanna, I wanna close with this. Here's, here's the bottom line. Here's the big idea of the whole message. Jesus is the sure cornerstone for your life. Not a cornerstone. He is the sure cornerstone for your life. There is no other. And at the end of the day, what Peter is doing here is he's saying there's two responses to Jesus. And your response to Jesus is the most important thing about you. Because if you build your life on Jesus, you will never be put to shame. But on the other hand, if you reject him for some other cornerstone, you will stumble and eventually you will spend eternity separated from the God who created you and loves you. Everything is at stake with what you do with Jesus. And so I simply want to say, man, if you, if you are watching this right now and you have never actually, I don't care if you're religious, I don't care if you've gone to church your whole life, if you've never actually just given your life to Jesus, never actually just placed the weight of all of your trust and your faith in Jesus as the cornerstone of your life, I just want to plead with you today to start that relationship, to make that transition, to do that 180 in your life starting today. 
And so if that's where you're at and, and maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you, like, man, I, I, I realize I have built my life on other cornerstones, false cornerstones that are eventually gonna crumble and cave in on me. And I want to build my life on this cornerstone, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. If that's you, if that's where you are, just pray something like this. The words don't matter. Just say, God, listen, I, I realize I have been building my life on wrong cornerstones. I've sinned against you, God. I've, I've chosen other things over you again and again. But God, that, that ends today for me. That stops today. God, so, so help me. I don't, I'm not strong enough to do this by myself. God, help me turn away from my sin. Help me turn away from my sin and to Jesus. And I want to live for him from this day forward. If you prayed a prayer like that, I just want to encourage you to have the courage to let somebody know. To reach out this week, let us know. You can let us know in the chat if you're on a chat. You can email us. You can call us in the office. Let us know. If that's something that you want to do, if that's something that you just did, have the courage to take the next step and reach out because we want to help walk that path with you. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for, thank you for building your people on the sure foundation that is the cornerstone of Jesus, God. Father, would you teach us not to chase other cornerstones in this world that tend to compete for our time, that tend to compete for our affection, God? Father, for those of us who are already a part of your family, for those of us who are already living stones, who are being built into this awesome, huge spiritual house that is designed to point other people to your love, God, would you teach us how to be proclaimers of the excellencies of Jesus in our lives, God. That this is not something that's, that's meant to be kept for ourselves. This is, this is the best news in the world. We ought to be more excited about this news than anything else in the world or anything else in our lives, God. So would you, would you help us? Would you embolden us? Help us to become proclaimers of your excellencies to those around us, God. And for those maybe father who are watching this who are at this point in their lives they're just stumbling over the truth of the gospel Jesus is a rock of offense to them right now God for those we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit like you've done for so many of us God that you would do it again for others father I pray that you would show them your love your compassion for them Father, I pray that you would begin to, to soften their hearts, that you would begin to open their eyes so that they too might taste and see of your goodness and the freedom that you provide, God. So we ask all of this in the beautiful name of our cornerstone, the cornerstone, Jesus. Amen.